This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, Thanksgiving's behind us. Hanukkah is underway and Christmas is around the corner. We're officially in the holiday season. Well, Mark, it's probably not all that festive at the White House. They fixed much of the troubled federal exchange, healthcare.gov, but you know, there's still a lot of problems to be worked out. And I think that November 30th target date may look a little bit ambitious for a problem so layered and complex. They have come a long way since the initial troubled rollout, though. Well, Margaret, the pace of insurance uh, customers being able to sign up on the federal exchange has accelerated dramatically. A few weeks ago, only 27,000 customers were able to complete the process on the federal site, healthcare.gov. The next week, the number had doubled. And as these issues with the website continue to be hammered out, there should be a dramatic increase in business through December. Well, the irony of this, of course, business on the state exchanges has been going quite smoothly and been quite robust. And if all states had gone that route, this might have been a smoother rollout. And we're seeing that pace accelerate as more folks become familiar with the idea of buying insurance in the online marketplaces and have done their sort of self-education and comparisons. A number of state insurance commissioners are still mulling over whether folks whose insurance plans were canceled by the end of the year uh, will be able to keep those plans. Some great exciting news, though, out of California. They said, no, you can't keep your plan. Uh, Our exchange has been up and running, and I think that bodes well for the way the country might head. So once again, uh, something that will be decided on a state-by-state basis, Mark, and we wish everybody well in their decision-making. But it does beg the question, why are people so eager to hang on to plans that really don't protect them all that much? I think it's one of those situations where people aren't sure what they're paying for, or as uh, somebody recently said, as long as you don't get sick, you think it's good insurance. Insurance is complex, and uh, that's something our guest today can speak to. Kathy Shane is the Senior Vice President at the Commonwealth Fund, which is a foundation dedicated to creating a high-performance health system. She just completed a study of 11 wealthy nations, including the United States, comparing our respective insurance industries. And you can imagine the U.S. didn't stack up as well in terms of affordability or efficiency. And for those who are interested, that study was published in this month's edition of Health Affairs. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be stopping by to shine a spotlight on misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. And no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please contact us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Kathy Shane in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Well, November 30th has come and gone, and there are still some sticking points on the federal health exchange, healthcare.gov. Analysts had predicted the problems with the site were simply too complex to fix in so grand a scale and in such a short period of time. The healthcare.gov site pulls together a slew of contributions from various government contractors and attempts to join the structure with the systems of participating insurance companies. Experts say the amount of information coursing through healthcare.gov dwarfs that of any other government website, making it more similar to a high-traffic e-commerce operation like Amazon or eBay. And the information is out now that confirms there was very little testing of the site pre-launch. Just days before the October launch date, the healthcare.gov site failed to handle even 500 test customers logging on at the same time. But looking at the long view, analysts also predict the site will ultimately be running smoothly because, quote, 
It has to. Meanwhile, states are weighing in differently on the president's fix for the canceled health insurance policy, telling folks they can keep their plan for another year, while state insurance commissioners in California and Vermont, among others, say they won't allow insurers to offer those canceled plans back to customers for another year. They say it will undermine the robust state-based insurance exchanges and rate and benefit controls for their state's residents. Meanwhile, the president has insisted that all letters of renewal to those canceled customers must come with a clear warning that the policies they're reinstating don't protect the consumers against discrimination for gender, pre-existing conditions, for being female, all of which lead to higher rates. Most of those canceled policies don't cover the health care law's 10 essential benefits. And the guy who became a billionaire creating Microsoft is now taking his innovation skills from the bathroom to the bedroom. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has already launched a competition to build a better toilet to meet the needs of the 2.5 billion people on the planet who lack access to basic plumbing. Now they're turning their attention to reducing unwanted pregnancies and reducing the spread of STDs by building a better condom. Some of the more inventive solutions among the 800-plus entries into this competition include condoms made from cow's tendon or fish skin with the key ingredient collagen being culled from those sources, feeling more like normal skin. Others of the polyurethane variety will come in a one-size-fits-all mode with antibacterial nanoparticles to fight the spread of STDs. Winners of the first round of the competition received 100000 bucks to continue their research. I'm Arianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Kathy Shane, Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Evaluation at the Commonwealth Fund in New York. Ms. Shane is the former research director of the Fund's Commission on a High-Performance Health System. She has taught health economics at the University of Massachusetts School of Public Health. Prior to that, Ms. Shane served on President Carter's National Health Insurance Task Force. She has authored numerous publications on health policy issues, including a recent health affairs report on health insurance cost and complexities in 11 countries, including the United States, and is co-author of the book, Health and the War on Poverty. Ms. Shane, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to join you. Kathy, to say that uh, this has been tumultuous times for the Affordable Care Act and that the American public is learning about the complexities of the health insurance system with the online marketplaces having really an inconsistent rollout, some great successes in certain states and the federal system uh, still not ready for prime time, but they're working on it. So we thought this would be a good time, though, to look at the insurance industry itself. Your recent report published in Health Affairs compared insurance complexities in our country with 10 other wealthy nations. So how did the U.S. insurance industry stack up in your findings against those other countries? Um, We stacked up very poorly, actually, uh, despite spending far more than any of the other 10 countries in the study. And this included Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Sweden, Norway, Canada, the U.S. stands out for far more negative experiences based on reports of what American adults are experiencing um, on virtually all our measures of affordable access, burdens paying medical bills, time-consuming insurance complexity, Americans fare poorly. Kathy, I know that uh, at a fundamental level, these two areas, affordability and access, are so critical and so basic. And your report noted that the lack of affordability really had the most profound impact on primary care. And of course, if people can't afford it, then they have issues with access to care. So 
We know that that leads people to forego care longer, to defer seeking care when they need it, and then seeking care in the emergency room. What's the real cost, Ben, according to your study, to our nation's health as a direct result of this insurance system? And, and can you quantify how you think this is going to change once the health care law is fully deployed? When you hear that nearly 40% of adults, these are this is a random sample of adults and not just sicker adults, 40% said that they went without care because of costs. They didn't get recommended care. They didn't fill a prescription. They didn't go to a specialist. Compared to 4 and 6% in some of the other countries, we pay a lot out of pocket, $1,000 or more, even when we have insurance. can see that affordable access um, is a key part of our concerns. If you can't get in, you're not going to get quality care. As you noted, we more often wait for primary care when sick. We don't get in quickly, same or next day, and um, one out of four say they waited six days or more. This is all part of um, it. root causes going back to an insurance system where we often have much higher deductibles, much higher cost sharing, and we have huge numbers of people who have no insurance altogether. So the only place that's, whose doors are open is the emergency room. Um, or people with a high deductible avoid going to see the doctor, but they know in the middle of the night if they get really sick, the emergency room door is open. We're really distorting our healthcare systems, building emergency rooms, and we're not investing in primary care and uh, comprehensive care with people for chronic disease to avoid complications. We really can do much better if we keep our eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. Let's get down in the weeds a little, and your report focuses on the administrative cost of insurance in America, and part of the Affordable Care Act limits the percentage of premium costs that can be spent on non-medical expenditures. How much do these administrative issues impact healthcare costs in this country, and what can we learn from other countries? The Institute of Medicine estimated that we spend in excess of $300 billion a year, much of it wasted on administrative costs. And those those insurer administrative costs are just the tip of the iceberg. Inside a doctor's office, there's anywhere from one to two extra people in terms of time of nurses, doctors, administrative staff dealing with paperwork. And it's partly because we just never have standardized. We have different reporting forms. Things change all the time. Uh, no two carriers do things the same same way. And we don't see this in other countries, even countries like Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Germany, which have competing private insurance plans as the way they have reached near universal coverage. They do much more standardization than we do. And the result is less time for doctors, patients, hospitals, and I might add a lot less administrative costs. They're sho- they would be shocked by the American levels that even with the Affordable Care Act, we're holding insurers to, they operate with 5%. Kathy, not- would, would that be true for Medicare in this country? Absolutely. Our Medicare system operates at much lower administrative right. costs, okay. much lower. Is that more comparable to what you see in the countries that you looked at? Much more comparable. And if you talk to senior citizens who have been on Medicare for a while, it doesn't change every year. Mm-hmm. So they, they know more what to expect. Even if it's complicated when they first get in, it's going to be that way next year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this this notion of insurance surprises doesn't happen as much, where you thought the plan was going to pay and you get your bill and, oh, for some reason, this you didn't do the right thing. You didn't make a phone call or some paperwork didn't happen. Um, it's very unusual 
that that would ever happen in another country, and it's it doesn't happen for most Medicare beneficiaries. Well, Kathy, you've uh, certainly been looking at the American uh, health care system and health insurance issues since going back all the way to your days working in the Carter administration, where you served on the president's National Health Insurance Task Force. Taking that long view of the health insurance industry, I'd be curious uh, your thoughts about the role that lack of transparency may have played and what it will play going forward, how much it has the potential to change things. Certainly, Massachusetts has had uh, price transparency regulation on the books now. What do you think we've learned? Well, it it certainly will help um, to, to have prices that you're going to face as a patient or as a physician when you are about to recommend treatment be a secret um, is not the way any market works very well. We need to know what things are going to cost us before we get the service, not afterwards when people can't explain it. We are an amazingly non-transparent system right now. Again, visitors to the country, when one of their questions is, how much will this cost? What's the price? And we go, well, we don't know. And they're shocked. And there wouldn't be the wide variation we find when we finally lift the veil. So it's a starting point. But I think we need to start asking, why are prices so high in the United Mm -hmm. States? And why does the same thing cost five times as much in one place as another place? Um, And that's what transparency will help us start to ask those questions and start to direct our energy on making a much more coherent Mm -hmm. system, not just transparent, but one that makes more sense. We're speaking today with Kathy Shane, Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Evaluation at the Commonwealth Fund in New York. She was also a research director of the Fund's Commission on a High-Performance Health System and served on the Carter Administration's National Health Insurance Task Force. Kathy, let's uh, look at the online insurance marketplaces and their uh, still working out the flaws in the federal exchange, uh, healthcare.gov. And clearly we're seeing mixed realities with these new online insurance public marketplaces. Uh, but this is sort of a new experience for Americans, though I'd say in the private sector, they may be a little ahead with uh, some movement towards private marketplaces. What What is your research at the Commonwealth Fund shown about Uh, the public's perception of these public or private marketplaces, and how will that change over time? We're clearly at the very early stages. It didn't help that the federal government was shut down for two weeks as the exchanges Mm -hmm. opened up in terms of having people pay attention to what wasn't working well. And no one thinks the rollout has gone smoothly, certainly not as smoothly as people hoped. Um, The good news is, is a kind of an interesting piece of news. People are aware there are reforms in place. Some people before this happened that the Affordable Care Act had been repealed. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's the good news. <laughs> uh, so, and and part of the initial problem on the federal exchanges that are where the federal government is now running in far more states than expected to. There were only some states that stepped up to the plate and said, "We want to run our own." All these yeah. other states said, "You run it for us." Right. Um, was millions of people tried to get on? Um, they had not expected that kind of turnout in the first few weeks, and the flaws in the web became quickly available as it just couldn't handle the volume. And so we think that's going to be fixed. And there's currently awareness. People, um, when we recently surveyed them, if they'd tried to enroll or find information, were frustrated, were intending on coming back. Um, there's a real eagerness in the United States for to have decent insurance. 
if you're uninsured, you want a policy, um, mm-hmm. and there, for the first time it's being offered at a fairly affordable rates. And if you have awful insurance, you'd like it to be better. We have an, a lot of people who have policies that just um, fail them when they need them. They hit a $1,000 cap on a drug benefit. They mm-hmm. run out altogether of an insurance benefit. It doesn't cover a benefit their child needs. We're, for the first time, define insurance the way every other country and says, and you shouldn't be surprised if it's insurance should be mm-hmm. giving you access and protecting you when you get sick. Mm-hmm. They don't all look alike. They didn't agree. Let's just make this simple. Um, so the complexity is still there of our private insurance system. So we we think it's going to iron itself out. We hope it will iron itself out. And there will be millions enrolled rather than millions trying to find out what's available to them. Well, I want to go back to this issue of uh, what is a high-performing health system and, and high-performance primary care. And we talked about uh, accessibility and affordability, but Kathy, maybe share with our listeners what are some of the other characteristics of high-performance health care and, and how do those characteristics make a difference on some of our most vexing issues like health disparities? Everyone listening has to understand that we spend by far, far the most, uh, nearly 50% more than the next highest country. So it's not that we're not spending enough. We have a wealth of resources, but we've never really invested in primary care. And when you think of what is primary care, that's the place you go first when you have a concern. Hopefully it's you can stay with that practice over time if it's a place you like and they get to know you and your medical history. When you need more complicated care and specialist care, they help you navigate the care system. If you have a chronic disease, um, a heart condition, along with nurses increasingly, remind you on what medications you're taking. So when primary care is working well, it's at the hub. It's a gateway to the rest of the care system. If you call someone, you can get in quickly. And disturbingly, in, in our this survey, we often wait. More than half of the Americans in our survey said last time they needed care, they couldn't get in the first or the second day, and a quarter of them said they waited six days or more before they could be seen. Um, if you call it 10 o'clock at night, that's considered after-hours care. It's not after-hours care for being sick, but you're told, just go to the emergency room. There are other countries that have said that shouldn't happen. There's always an after-hours care system catching you, and they've really invested in making that work for the doctors and the nurses and for patients. So we have the, the vision should be as you can get in quickly, including by phone. We know it works when we see systems changing this way. Emergency room use goes down. Uh, People get to specialists when they need to, but you don't bounce around the care system as much. And the management of chronic disease improves, outcomes improve. You know, I wanted to take a look at the regulations in our comparison against other countries because we have the lowest number of insurance regulations against the 11 countries that you polled. And uh, it's obviously yielded some bad outcomes in terms of uh, the increase year after year in our rates and uh, the rise in high deductible plans forcing consumers to pay far more out of pocket. And I want you to tell us about this lack of regulation in the American system, but is there a difference between the countries that you studied that might have had a federal system where we really have 50 state insurance commissioners and maybe in the other entities that really pose lots of problems. Tell us a little more about the lack of regulation here. That's a great question. Um, You need to start with 
everyone understanding that all of the other countries we're comparing ourselves to have either universal or near universal coverage. And where they have private insurance system, and several of them do, years ago they said you cannot turn anyone away because they're sick. You cannot charge them more because they're, they're sick or because they're female. Um, they were just uh, people were amazed that we didn't do that, but they have everyone in. So people mm-hmm. also know everyone will have insurance and understand it's there for a lifetime. So just at that starting point of um, how not so much we regulate the private insurance industry, but the fact that we have a universal system where we're trying to aim for it enables us to say, let's change the rules of the game. Insurers can't turn you away anymore starting in 2014. They can't charge you more if you're sick. They can't do, which several people in my family had happened to, and they can't ask you about any prior conditions or family history and say, okay, we're going to insure you, but not for that. Mm-hmm. Not for that condition. Mm-hmm. Um, can't happen. Can't ask you questions about your health when offering you insurance. So that basic change will mean that people who market and people who are actuaries, all these hidden people, will have less to do because there are a lot of underwriters that are trying to figure (laughs) out whether you're one of those people that they don't want to insure and you're one of the people they do want to insure. Mm -hmm. We've just removed, removed a layer that shouldn't really be necessary. And over time, what you pointed out, we have 50 different states. They could be more similar. There's no reason not to be. Several of these countries run things at a county level. But yes, there's no reason why we wouldn't have common standards for insurance across the United States, particularly on the way carriers behave. Kathy, you co-authored a book that was a very pivotal book, I think, for many of us in, in healthcare and community health titled Health in the War on Poverty. And in it, you examined the impact of programs like Medicaid and Medicare on leveling at least a piece of the healthcare playing field. How far have we come since that book was published back in the late 70s? That was a time when you were working with President Carter, maybe looking at pathways to a national health insurance system. So tell us, how does the current version of Obamacare reflect that vision or differ from it? And, you know, again, how far have we come in these several decades since then? Uh, You know, when Medicare and Medicaid were passed, that was supposed to be the first step toward marching toward universal coverage. And um, we waited till 2010, almost 50 years later, to take the second big step, Mm -hmm. which is the Affordable Care Act. So at the point we wrote the book, we actually thought um, change would be coming sooner because there was this steady increase of the uninsured and worry about people who could hold on to their private insurance, whether they could keep affording it and whether their employers would keep offering. So we are, in a way, taking that second step now. When Medicare and Medicaid first came in, the book we wrote said, let's look at those 10 years. What did we get? We got dramatic improvements in health outcomes. The Medicare program itself became an engine for innovation for the entire United States, Um, investing in our academic health centers, building up clinical knowledge. It's been the innovator for us all in the way hospitals are paid, doctors are paid, private insurers often wait for Medicare to act and then follow. Mm -hmm. So I think we have the opportunity to be innovative again looking forward, um, particularly if we finally bring everybody in. 
so that it's no longer going to be okay that the way you save money is just by not serving certain people. If everyone's in, we're going to have to be more on the same page. We've lagged behind other countries. They've improved faster than we have. That doesn't have to be the story. We ought to be able to do better. We've been speaking today with Kathy Shane, Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Evaluation at the Commonwealth Fund in New York. You can learn more about this report and their work by going to commonwealthfund.org. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me on. This is... At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, we recently looked at a claim from Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who said the Medicaid expansion in the Affordable Care Act may bankrupt rural hospitals in the state. But Kentucky health care leaders say the hospitals stand to benefit because the expansion would extend insurance to those who otherwise wouldn't be able to pay their hospital bills. Senator Paul has introduced legislation to repeal the Medicaid expansion. He said the state hospitals could be overwhelmed with new Medicaid patients and may go bankrupt. But state health care officials have supported the expansion, partly because it would financially help the hospitals. In addition to expanding Medicaid to those earning up to 138% of the federal poverty level, the Affordable Care Act also slowly reduces federal funding for uncompensated care that goes to hospitals. The uncompensated care payments will be cut by $18.1 billion over seven years nationwide to help pay for the Medicaid expansion. In Kentucky, the state estimates the Medicaid expansion would cover an additional 308,000 state residents. A past president of the Kentucky Hospital Association said that not expanding Medicaid would financially hurt hospitals and that the hospitals supported the expansion. The state cabinet for health and family services issued a report recommending expansion, saying our hospitals will suffer without it. It estimated that the cut in uncompensated care payments would total $287.5 million over eight years. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. An estimated 26 million Americans suffer from diabetes or prediabetes, and that number is expected to triple in the coming decades. Diabetes is responsible for more deaths in this country than AIDS and breast cancer combined, but managing diabetes in such a large and diverse population remains one of the most pressing chronic health issues that face us. A pilot program launched by the American Pharmacists Association Foundation has indications for a new tool in the arsenal. Pharmacist and Foundation Vice President Benjamin Blummel created a pilot program that was deployed in 25 communities in 17 states, all focused on the underserved population, those who are homeless, living at or near the poverty line, the uninsured, people who often have the most difficult time complying with diabetes management directives. 
pharmacists were deployed as frontline monitors of the patient's A1C levels, blood pressure, cholesterol, BMI. Um, Because they're getting their prescriptions refilled fairly often, um, the patient oftentimes sees their pharmacist um, as much or more than all of the other healthcare providers combined. And so what a natural point um, you know, of access in our healthcare delivery system to receive um, a high-quality service that actually helps to empower patients to be effective self-managers of their de- traditional types of incentives that were employed were essentially to waive copays for diabetes-related medications, and so you eliminate the resistance and the friction associated with people being able to stick with their medication. You make sure that each one of the providers who's involved in the process is fairly compensated for the service delivery. The initial results of the pilot program, Project Impact Diabetes, showed some pretty significant improvements in the compliance and diabetes management of more than 2,000 participants. So we asked each one of the communities to, to implement a collaborative care program that included pharmacists to establish a continuous quality improvement process of their choosing to utilize our patient self-management credentialing resource and to collect and provide minimum data sets back to us on a regular basis. Uh, We saw statistically significant improvements in A1Cs and LDL cholesterols in systolic blood pressures and in body mass index. So across the board, those changes are very compelling and really show that this type of a model can work in these very different types of populations. Based on the success of the pilot program, the foundation plans to roll out Project Impact Diabetes to more communities around the country who are in need of better diabetes management. Pharmacists working in concert with a care team of clinicians, dietitians, medical providers, offering one more layer of intervention for patients who struggle to manage their chronic illness, helping to yield better health outcomes and a better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.